I'm Joshua Keiki from The Christian Citizen, and this is Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas sits down with Margaret Markusen, Matthew Krebin, and Michael Wolfe for a conversation around their respective contributions to the book In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, on what we've learned about the church, our communities, and ourselves during the pandemic and other crises our nation has faced over the last year. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas. Greetings and welcome to this edition of In This Together Tuesday on Facebook Live. I'm happy to have with us uh, three guests this week who are all contributors to In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis. The Reverend Matthew Krebin is the Senior Minister of Newtown Congregational Church in Newtown, Connecticut, and was a clergy first responder during the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14, 2012. He is a leader in promoting gun safety policies, finding other means locally and nationally to reduce gun violence, and helping people of faith understand the challenges and opportunities of ministering in the midst of trauma and disasters. The Reverend Margaret Marcusen helps ministers do their work without wearing out or burning out through ministry coaching, presentations, and online resources. She is a contributing author at The Christian Citizen. The Reverend Michael Wolf is a senior minister of the Lake Street Church in Evanston, Illinois, a THD candidate at Harvard University, and also a contributing author at The Christian Citizen. Each has written a chapter in In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, a collection of essays that explores what we are learning during the pandemic and the other crises we have faced in the past year about God about ourselves, about being church, being neighbors, and about our country and world. In Lessons Amid Disaster, Matt shares lessons he learned living and ministering through the trauma of the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. In Be the Least Anxious Person in the Virtual Room, Margaret shares insights on how leaders can effectively lead in anxious times. And in the triumph of the quotidian, Michael shares his experience of what baking bread during the pandemic taught him. And we will talk about all of that together today. Uh, the first thing I want to do, though, is to invite or welcome each of you uh, to this session and just ask how uh, you are doing in your various uh, ministry contexts. What does uh, church look like for you uh, at this time and, and going forward? And Michael, why don't we begin with you? Okay, sure. Uh, so we are in the midst, like a lot of congregations and communities, of trying to figure out what comes next in our communal life together. And just trying to sort through what that looks like to come back from being all virtual. We've been using the Zoom platform and uh, become really acquainted with that. And 
liked a lot of the merits of that, but are trying to figure out how to gather in person while continuing to have a robust Zoom presence and access for people who are not locally bound in our area and are not able to attend just because they don't live close enough. Uh, and also just folks who are not comfortable because there's a wide range of comfort with getting back together in person. So trying to figure out how to do both of those well, how to have a hybrid experience where people can see each other. Uh, like a lot of pastors, I think just becoming a, a very acquainted with how to do technological um, audio and video engineering, which is was not something that was my forte before, but uh, you know, I've learned a, a lot during the pandemic and I'm excited to put to use here at the end of the month when we start back. Matt, uh, how about you? How are things at your congregation and what's uh, the near future look like for you? Yeah, we are um, in a similar situation of discerning how to transition and, and we are uh, actually doing some rotating um did a uh in-person worship uh in the month of may in june now we'll have every other week we'll be in person um and always having an online option for folks to um, receive and then we anticipate by july we'll actually be meeting in person on a regular basis every sunday um uh barring unforeseen circumstances so uh, but that what that transition looks like, we're going to be doing a lot of outdoor gatherings for m- much of the summer when the weather is good and um, uh, kind of find our way that way in terms of worship. Okay. Margaret, what do things look like in your, your uh, ministry context? I've been working with pastors around the U.S. and Canada uh, over, you know, all of this time. And so it's so what I'm finding is that people in a way are finding it more stressful now because they have to like, they figured out how to do the online worship and now you have to navigate it, you know, as we were just hearing both and with, you know, varying degrees of comfort and varying levels of anxiety within the congregation and, you know, people are, they're tired. So I'm hoping everybody takes a good chunk of time off this summer because you need it. Right. Excellent. Matt, you pastor the First Congregational Church of Newtown, Connecticut, and uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you were present following the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, What is one thing you wish someone had told you um, about ministry and trauma before that day? Uh, Well, I wish somebody had told me that uh, I really don't, I didn't know anything about it. And I should learn something. Um, And that it's going to deeply impact your ministry if you experience a disaster. Uh, And so for today, I would say to folks, uh, we're all we're all living through a disaster. And if you don't understand disaster ministry, if you don't understand trauma, if you don't understand how communities uh, deal with um, that, not just on individual levels of trauma and how you help individuals deal with trauma, but that the community impacts of trauma um, for your own faith community, as well as your surrounding community. Uh, to uh, Margaret's point, you're probably going to burn out. Um, what we do know about ministers who minister uh, through disasters, and, and she was just highlighting this, people trying to come back from this transition. The world has totally changed. Uh, your ministries have totally changed. Um, we know that 
from the little data we have, and that's the other problem, I, I've learned that the church has done very little uh, <laughs> to help um, us as clergy and other faith leaders uh, in general to uh, to be more uh, engaged and, and learn this important topic uh, and its impact because the little data we do have is that ministers don't last long generally uh, who go through a communal trauma uh, in the, the setting where they are. Uh, many of them do leave. We don't know all the reasons why they leave, but um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see a lot of clergy facing some real challenges uh, and, and deciding not to stay in their current the situation that they lived that they lived through the this last this pandemic. Uh, so I wish people had uh, somebody had helped me learn more about it because uh, it was hard to learn uh, on the fly. Yeah. You, you talked, you just mentioned about the pandemic being a, a disaster, uh, a slow motion disaster, if you will, um, very different from a, a natural disaster or uh, the trauma of a, um, a mass shooting like, like you experienced in Newtown. But um, you write in the book that um, pastors will have a hard time taking care of themselves in the midst of that and, and coming out of that. You're just mentioning that um, folks leaving ministry. You write, if you are not careful, you will offer up your very self and even the well-being of your family and other intimate relationships, all in the name of the overwhelming need around you. What do you recommend uh, clergy do to avoid that temptation to sacrifice uh, themselves and the well-being of those closest to them in the midst of responding to a, to a disaster, traumatic event? Well, right. I mean, I think, you know, this is an area Margaret probably shared, you know, the, the trality for most clergy is, I, I'd name this the altar of the good. Um, that the, there is this desire to sacrifice at the altar of the good. Um, and in general, ministry always has an altar of the good. There's always more that can be done. There's always more that you can do to serve your community or make a difference in the world. Um, and in a disaster, it's just exponential uh, in terms of the amount of, of the, the good that's desired around you. I, how can I be uh, you know, help. How can I make a difference? You know, every minute of every day. Uh, and so, I think one of the things you have to do is to know that, um, um, especially as we come out of this pandemic. And I think many. Well, I, mean, I don't think we're coming out of this pandemic. That's the other thing is we're probably going to be living in this quasi um, disaster of you know, it's it's like the you know, the hurricane that, that just kind of comes and you get the back end of the hurricane. And then there's, you know, another, maybe it's a, a storm. So it's not full hurricane force, but it comes and you haven't even gotten the tarps on the roofs yet. So for us, emotionally and physically and other things, we're going to still have those kinds of kinds of things still happening. But um, I think the biggest thing is to, is, is to acknowledge that uh, and to help your church leadership to acknowledge um that nobody's going to navigate this well. There's going to be overwhelming need. Uh, the community is going to disagree about all kinds of, you're going to have individuals who, you know, as we've probably all experienced already, individuals who say, we should have been open eight months ago. And other people said, I don't think we should be having uh, open and physical worship for the next two years. I, I'm not going to be comfortable. Um, you're going to have people, uh, as I described, as is described to me in disaster life, who will be, you're going to be in the same chapter of a book, but you're all on different pages. 
Uh, and so for ministers, I would encourage folks to know that that's going to be part of how you navigate leadership uh, on this terrain. And, and if you're not prepared to know that that's going to happen, you can get really upset with people. You can take things personal for people that aren't really necessarily doing things to you personally, but are coming from really different places. And if you're not helping other people to understand where everybody else is um, uh, and, and how people are coming from this and to really be uh, leaning into uh, kindness uh, and love and compassion uh, for one another, uh, uh, which I think we're woefully inadequate in our general society uh, these days uh, in a lot of in a lot of contexts. Um, it's going to be uh, tough sledding. Yeah. Margaret, you six degrees here. I'm not sure why I'm talking about tough sledding, but it'll be tough sledding. <laughs> Margaret, you uh, you write about the anxiety of the times that uh, we're living in um, and living through. Why is it important for leaders to remain grounded in who they are in the midst of all of that? Well, there's really no other way to to keep yourself going. I mean, as Michael or Matt was saying, um, if you just, you know, you give yourself away, there's nothing left. Um, and people are going to be, they'll be happy to hand their anxiety to you. And, you know, you, you are not responsible for carrying that the weight. Um, and the, the other thing I was thinking about is there's, there's a, now there's a lot of anxiety about the future of the church, you know, individual congregations and overall the church in America. And it, um, I think the more you are clear, like I'm responsible for myself and how I function, keeping you know my life spiritually on track, being uh, focused on what, you know, what is mine to do letting go of what is not mine to do. Um, you know, that's the way to really make a contribution rather than carrying the burden of everything under which you will be crushed. What are some things you would recommend to clergy or that you do recommend to clergy to do that, to keep um, the anxiety of others in check, to maintain that kind of focus in the midst of, of those demands? Well, it's, it's a practice. Right. And you you will be you will catch the anxiety of others. But to, to begin to notice yourself in the moment, little by little, um, when you feel that that feeling in your stomach or your breath gets tight in a meeting or a conversation to just notice what it is you do and say, well, what was going on there? Oh, you know, I was talking to to Susan She's pressuring me to do more, to open up worship. And that's really more about her than it is about me. I, and that you can have compassion for her without taking responsibility for, for her feelings. Uh, and I think it's essential to have some ongoing practices of your own um, to some kind of prayer practice, some kind of movement practice. A lot of people taking up walking, can't go to the gym. And someone outside uh, the ministry that you can talk to, a thoughtful person uh, that you can help, uh, help, they can help you get some perspective on what, what you're up against. Michael, uh, like many church leaders, the pandemic 
upended your plans uh, in the spring of last year, all the things that you had um, envisioned doing, um, and you took your church online as many others did. You write that your first instinct was to try to do too much. Um, when did you realize you had to do things differently? And what was it that you and your congregation discovered was most essential and nourishing in that process? So I I, th- I think that the the impulse uh, to do too much was was to do something right. Just this feeling that you know if the the sacrificing on the altar of the good or over functioning or just you know the the world is falling apart. So maybe if church can be truly excellent, people will be able to have more sources for resilience, and I will also feel right that I will also feel that everything will be okay if I can just sort of over function through this, then things will will be better. But that that's not exactly what people need as you know i think a, a lot of people found out over time is is people wanted access to community to know that they were still held in community that they still belonged to each other and found belonging even if it was online and that was strange i think for the first little bit though you know this church that i'm currently in i've spent more time with them online than i have in person you know i just i did two Easter services. I haven't done the Easter service uh, in person. You know, I, I got about 11 months in uh, before and couldn't get to that Easter service. But I think that building those community, that community for me, baking bread together really helped do that. And that's a, that's a really slow activity. There's not a lot to show. Sometimes people don't even talk a ton, uh, but just being able to do a practice together to say that we're still together in this, that we have uh, some sort of shared practice that binds us together. I think that people found a lot of meaning through that, but uh, just, I think, being together, having these moments for people to organically connect and uh, sort of holding that space was was really powerful. And I think the result was people talk to each other in ways they'd never talked to each other. They built relationships in ways they'd never built relationships before. A, a lot of people grew to be close with another, adopted prayer practices they never had. We have a prayer practice that's been meeting now for um, months and months and months that meets in the morning and at night just for 10 minutes of prayer together. And I don't, I don't think that's ever happened in the history of this church or if it hasn't, if it has, then it's been a long time ago, uh, not in, people's living memory. And I think that that is a, that's been really powerful. And that, that came together. That was completely not from me. That's completely from people organically saying, this is what we need and we're going to do it and we're going to build it ourselves. And there's nothing better as a leader than seeing people uh, take community into their own hands and build it themselves. Is uh, baking bread something you were doing before the pandemic? Is that something you you learned in the process of, and you were actually gathering the congregation on Zoom, right? In your various kitchens, baking together. Sure, yeah, that, that's, part, that's part of the fun. I, I got to see what people, art people have in people's house, what their what their kitchen looks like, uh, what their uh, bread baking setup looks like, how good they are at baking bread, and there's various skill levels. It's all okay, we're doing it together. Uh, we, we did that, I'll, a lot early on in the pandemic. I think some people fell off the bread train, but I'm still going strong. It's definitely something that I, I love to do and have gotten better at over uh, the past little bit, uh, over the past 15 months or so, or 14 months. But I, I did not, I've never break, baked bread before doing that. And uh, I had, like most people, I had my 
yard sale, garage sale, thrift store, uh, bread machine for, for mixing dough and stuff, but I had never really actually used it. I always intended to try that, but it gave me a little space when I was home watching my three-year-old to, to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to bake a lot and we're going to see what happens with that. And for me, that, that was really good. And also it's the best bread ever. So the benefit is that I don't really buy bread anymore and it's really delicious and I know exactly what goes in it. No. Or maybe five ingredients, you know, and uh, just being able to bond with my three-year-old baking bread too. I mean, I, I had a lot of benefits from it for sure. You also write about um, how that whole experience has informed your preaching. Can you talk a little bit about how, how the experience on Zoom has shaped uh, your sermon development? Sure. I mean, I think that just just like I'm sort of... Uh, the the whole the whole analogy uh, i guess uh, of trying to overfunction and overdo it you know if i could just if i could just preach the right sermon then i would move people to do the thing now if i could you know if i could just really tie together these intricate threads of the biblical tradition then i could awaken something in somebody but just you know being able to give a little bit of that up and say yeah it's important to have a good sermon but really what i'm doing is i'm setting the stage for people to build community to make those connections more organically to let god rise into our midst a little bit more like yeast you know and that's a that's a theme in the bible so just letting trusting that god is going to be there to do that work just like whenever i put in yeast it's still magic I mean, for all intents and purposes for me, it's still magic that at the end of the process, there's going to be a risen dough just because I put in these, what, these grains, what are they, what are they supposed to do? But they, they make the bread rise anyway. Uh, and that's its own sort of miracle. And watching that miracle unfold, I think made me more willing to believe that God could be in our midst and awaken things within people. And that's not all up to me. And so when that's true, that definitely has changed my preaching. It's changed how I inhabit board meetings. It's changed how I, how I do a lot of things. Uh, just being able to trust that a little bit more, being able to take a step back and say, um, I, I trust that this community is resilient, that this community has resources that I don't. And yeah, I'm a custodian of it. I'm, I'm going to help shepherd it along and I might prod a little bit when I see a problem that I, I want to resolve, but really having confidence both in, in trust in God and the people that I serve has been, uh, that just has grown and grown and grown during the pandemic. And I couldn't imagine leading any other way. Mm. Matt, have you found uh, your experience online and in, in kind of leadership in the last year has has shaped your approach to preaching or changed how you, how you do things? Yeah. For, well, for the last, you know, since we moved, we had a couple of weeks at early in the pandemic where we live, live stream from our uh, sanctuary. And then we really had a point where, well, does this, since it was really early on, people weren't sure, you know, what distance is appropriate. And we were doing music and, um, you know, basically a worship service. It was just with worship leaders. We kind of said, we're going to go uh, out of the sanctuary. So I've been preaching for the last, you know, since then from my living room. Mm. Um, and so for me, uh, it's been more, definitely more conversational. Um, my congregation will tell you, I've never stayed in the pulpit anyway. Uh, I've always uh, preached walking around the sanctuary and talking to people, but, you know, using the media, it's been much more conversational um, and utilizing sometimes, you know, uh, video clips or other things that we 
that ours, our, we were not necessarily uh, high, high tech engaged in my congregation in our usual worshiping practices. Um, so it's been, you know, experimental with some of that. And, um, you know, I think that conversationalness has been, been helpful. You know, it's been uh, in some ways uh, there's a vulnerability there. Um, I think it's important to, you know, at, at different stages to kind of acknowledge um, uh, that, yeah, uh, I'm the leader, but I don't know how this is all going to turn out. Um, uh, um, I have faith in my relationship with God that undergirds this, but uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can say everything's going to be fine. And, um, you know, one of the things I learned from disasters is that sometimes people get out over their skis trying to get their theology to um, to answer the great uh, problematic questions of, of suffering in the world and everything else. And there's great theology that talks about that. But I learned after sitting in a room with parents who lost uh, six-year-old children that the best theology in the world uh, is very thin uh, in response to human suffering. Um, a faith in God can be potent and powerful relationship is as Michael's highlighted in, you know, our connectionalism, these, these kind of things uh, are what people draw from. And what I learned also through my own disaster is people, most people, interestingly, that were most intimately affected by, um, by the trauma and the disaster of uh, the San Diego Elementary School never asked me about why did this happen with God? That was always reporters, other people outside saying, can you make meaning of this? Uh, people who are going through disasters have a hard enough time just trying to make it. Um, <laughs> um, and they're looking for purpose. They're not looking for meaning. They're not looking for the existential questions. And sometimes I think we as church leaders sometimes think we have to be the meaning makers in every moment. I'm going to give you why, why the meta meaning of what's going on here and how this all fits together. And um, I think we do that poorly. And I very often uh, and Christianity has done that poorly over the years in a lot of contexts. And we've actually done ourselves harm uh, in, in our messaging to the world because we've 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 suggested that there are easy answers to really, really challenging questions when people are faced with uh, uh, human suffering uh, and with trauma and with loss. Um, and I think we're going to have a lot of that challenge as we are in our life right now. Um, and unfortunately, hopefully we will, we will learn a bit and, and, and try and be a little bit humble about what we can say. Um, yeah, I think in some real ways, trying to provide that meaning or provide that meaning too soon seems to trivialize the suffering that, that people are going through. Um, have you all found as well, I mean, in, in your own ministry context or, or Margaret with um, those you work with, I mean, one of the, I think, challenges of the pandemic has been around uh, grief in the localized context of people losing loved ones, not able to have the kind of ritual around that, whether it's a funeral or even being able to be with people when they die. Um, and then there's this just also sort of societal grief, global grief of, uh, you know, these untold numbers of people who have died 
uh, from COVID. Um, Margaret, I, a question for you, I guess, is are folks that you're working with struggling with that, how to, how to kind of um, navigate that e either in their own community or, or dealing with um, the kind of unresolved trauma of that um, in their context? Yeah, I, 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 people are dealing with it and, you know, it's, uh, they're dealing it with in their own, in their own lives, as well as with their congregations. Um, you know, I've talked to, talked with some people, you know, in New York city, at just the peak of, right. of the pandemic. Um, and that was just almost overwhelming. And now I'm finding people are sort of, they're, they're in a way dreading like that, that the, the, uh, I don't know the word, the clump of funerals to come for themselves, like navigating these in-person funerals that, that are planned for this summer. Um, and, you know, my own father died in, in October and I, I, I've no, I just noticed, um, you know, I was able to visit him in person, which was a, a tremendous gift. Um, but it felt heavy, not just the loss of, of him, but with the, the weight of the world at this time was so much lost globally. Yeah. Um, Matt, you, you, you talk about um, not focusing on making meaning necessarily. So what uh, should leaders be doing in the aftermath of trauma or disaster? You mentioned finding purpose or. Um, yeah, I, I think there is a time for, there's definitely time for meaning making. And I think, yeah. you know, we have a Christian story to tell that, you know, understands meaning in, in terms of making meaning around our relationship with God in, for me as a Christian relationship with God in Christ and um, how Jesus journeyed this life, how Jesus faced suffering and death. And, um, uh, but it's a story, right? Uh, sometimes we do a lot of extra commentary on the story that I think uh, gets us into trouble. Um not that we shouldn't do some commentary, but you know, there, there just seems to be sometimes this way in which people kind of say, Oh, these direct parallels. So I, I think there's a lot of meaning making that I talk about in my article for the, the publication about, you know, we have a story to tell and, and the story, you know, when you actually share the story, well, uh, people connect to it. Um, when you kind of live out that story, as Michael was saying in different ways of, of community, um, you know, that, that is meaning making people are, are getting meaning, but it's not kind of the heavy handed meaning making like, you know, I just remember seeing other disasters and people, you know, in public places and sometimes the religious leaders getting up and saying, you know, here's the meaning, you know, right after this awful thing has happened. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if anything else, but it felt very thin and just pushed forced. Hmm. Um, so I think one of the things is, um, uh, that for for leaders to kind of ponder and, and wrestle with it in in what it continues to be really this disaster time is um, understanding that it, from my perspective understanding theologically this is a disaster we don't just have grief of people who lost loved ones we don't just have the other grief of other people who maybe knew somebody or who were in jobs that faced really awful things that they saw and experienced. We have all of that, but then we have the, the change for people who 
you know, we know in our church, the church has changed completely. We know many people, their jobs have changed completely from what they were, even if they had jobs. And what we know about disaster and the challenge of ministry and helping people, from my experience, is there are a bunch of people that are impacted in my wider community after Sandy Hook. But many of them said, oh, uh, I didn't lose somebody. You know, um, resources or whatever goes on, you know, take care of those people. I mean, people are very altruistic. They, they say, look, we got to take care of the people who are hurt most. What we know in disasters is communities who've been impacted by disasters, and this is the, the challenge for us going forward, is um, all the metrics for well community well-being um, do not look great for communities that have been impacted by disasters. And it's not just the people who are directly impacted. It's not just people who lost their house in the hurricane. It's people who are living in that you know, that, that, that community as well. Divorce rates go up. Um, you know, you have, we have bad metrics too. We don't study this enough. So, but the metrics we do have, divorce rates go up, uh, incidence of substance abuse goes up, you know, all these other metrics you have, you know, and divorce rates isn't just people that, you know, you kind of say, oh, well, of course they're, divorced, you know, and people that aren't going to say we got divorced because of this disaster that happened. But all the well-being of the whole community is shaken in a disaster and everybody's impacted. And the, one of the challenges is a lot of folks don't recognize it. And, of course, if you tell them you've been affected by this, they go, no, I haven't. Mind your own business. But you have to strategize. How do we try and make our communities? Uh, how do we, we bring well-being in a wider scale, not just to the squeaky wheels? You know, we have crisis management is how we treat things. So if I'm feeling bad, I go see somebody. Unfortunately, that's not a great way to have community well-being. Uh, if if my congregation only comes to me when they're in a crisis, an individual, that's great, and, and I want to work with them, and I may refer them and do other work. But they there may be a lot of other stuff that's going on before that. That if I can strategize to give well-being to folks and help them not just myself, but others, as uh, Margaret was even highlighting earlier, I, I'm talking too long, so I'm going to stop. But, you know, we have yoga. We had yoga. And now we, we still had, we had yoga online three times a week in my congregation. And, and people kind of go, why are we having so much yoga? What, that church has too much yoga. Why do they have yoga? We have yoga because mind body is helpful for well-being and people that are, were needing, were needing it in my community, not just my church members, but anybody. Um, and we, subsidized it so that it could be available. So strategizing of how do you bring well-being, help people's minds to be regulated by what they do with their bodies, how to help people experience more well-being overall. I, I think that's a, a big strategy that we're going to have to continue to, to as a partner in a community and also to highlight to people because our society generally does crisis management. What are the squeaky wheels? We'll treat the squeaky wheels. That doesn't promote ultimately community well-being it only it only it's less squeaky wheels uh but your the, the wheels will fall off down the road uh because we haven't been paying attention to all of them we've just been oiling the squeaky one right there's i think a real need to um and there's been quite a bit of conversation around this um this whole notion of trauma-informed communities or um trauma-informed practices i think that's kind of what you're getting at here it's not simply the uh, response in the immediate aftermath. It's looking further down the road. How do we kind of process and, um, Michael, I want to return to something you were talking about that, um, 
was interesting to me in terms of the, the congregation um, coming together, finding community online, you know, in this practice of breaking bread. Um, has it been your experience that that engagement, uh, I mean, do you see that um, engagement and kind of ownership of community making um, carrying forward beyond this sort of online experience? Because uh, that I think is one of the interesting things. I think we can often think of ministry as a very kind of um, lonely vocation, if you will. You're the leader of a congregation. But if you're actually engaged in making community with that congregation, they're taking some ownership for that. I think that's actually a very healthy thing. Do you see that continuing? What's what's your hope with, with that? Well, you know, certainly I hope so. Uh, that, that's definitely the sort of collabor- collaboration that I want to be engaged in uh, in ministry. And that's certainly one way to ensure that I can be a ministry for a long period of time. Obviously, the other model, as we've discussed, of giving yourself on the altar or over-functioning, that, that doesn't really work. So uh, if you give all of yourself away. So I, I think that this is a healthier model. One of the things that I did is to try to encourage that is these people who have stepped up into these roles to sort of make community in these organic ways to try to, in some way, uh, concretize those contributions and uh, give people lay minister roles and say, like, I mean, you're really the convener of a community. You're doing real ministry and to honor that ministry. I mean, I think at least, you know, in the, in the American Baptist tradition, there's a, there's, is such a rich tradition of lay leadership. So finding ways to name that ministry, celebrate that ministry and, and say, and people who want to do ministry are welcome here. Uh, absolutely. It's not about uh, something having to be initiated for me. I, I certainly would rather it wasn't because if the congregation has ownership of it, it's so much more robust, so much more dynamic, it can make so much more impact. So I think that that's certainly my hope. All all the sort of signs seem to point to, yes, uh, that people, once they've gotten a taste for what it's like to do ministry in, in a community and have that sort of response, that call and response of doing ministry and having people say, yes, we want to build community with you. Uh, I think that people have found that to be a, a really life-giving mode of doing ministry and of, of being in a congregation. I don't think they want to give it up, at least the people that I am talking to and trying to have join as lay ministers and talk to once a week and sort of supervise and guide them on what ministry looks like. Margaret, has that been your experience with, um, clergy you work with as far as um, that kind of co-ownership of ministry that's been enriched in this process? Well, as you might anticipate, there's a range. Sure. So there's, I, I see some, some congregations and I, you know, I just love, love what Michael's saying about, uh, about shared, shared ministry. Um, and then, you know, I, I see some who, you know, who are, who are doing it all. Yeah. And I, I, I think it, it is, it, I think it's been harder in, in smaller churches mm-hmm. where um, I think the, the pastor, in, at least in some cases, has ended up be, you know, being responsible for the tech, mm-hmm. the older congregation, they, people, there's, they don't have capacity. Um, and I, I said to one pastor, it's better not to have church one Sunday than for you not to have a Sunday off. No, and it's about, it couldn't do it. Mm. Um, but I think even in a setting like that, to to to, to say, you know, I, I need help. I need your help. 
and, and to invite people to step up and, and share in the ministry it's, it's, it's better for everybody. Well, we're coming to the close of our time. I wanted to give each of you a uh, opportunity to share one uh, final word with our audience. Michael, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that we've talked about and one of the most exciting things uh, that has come out of this experience is being able to preach directly to and have conversations ab about how mutually interdependent we are and how uh, we're, we're not individuals who are just sort of uh, doing our own thing, but that we are mutually constitutive and being able to have those conversations with people in a context in which is directly obvious and undeniable has been really helpful, I think, for being being able to move people's consciousness around building that community, around building resilience, and around naming that interdependence, interdependence in a robust way that I've struggled to do previously in my ministry, but I think uh, has found some footing here at this time. Margaret, uh, final thoughts? Find something that gives you joy in your life and your work and do more of it. Thank you. Matt, your final word for our listeners? Yeah. Um, I always feel like when I come on these things, Kurt, like I'm the doom and do doom and gloom pastor, uh, you know, like, man, disasters, <laughs> watch out. Um, the really great thing, though, if you look at the history of kind of the impact of major disasters, as for all the stuff we just talked about, I talked about, um, is that uh, throughout human history, when there have been these these big shakes, uh, often caused by what we might describe now as disasters or global issues, uh, there has been opportunities um, for religious uh, revival, spiritual awakening, uh, potent and powerful forces at work as humans understand that we have to reconnect with the things that are are so ultimate to to what we care about most and who we are and and so there's going to be great opportunities for those who want to 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 channel that um those opportunities into, into ways that can be transformative for not only local communities but for our world so i really encourage folks not to be you know uh yeah take time off uh do self-care um, but also know that there's some great opportunities to be the church and be the faith community in new ways um, that we probably wouldn't have had an opportunity to do um, a year and a half ago. Well, I want to thank each of you for being a part of the conversation today and for your contributions to In This Together. And to our viewers and listeners, you can engage this conversation further by posting questions and comments on the In This Together Facebook page at Ministry in Times of Crisis. Ministry in Times of Crisis, uh, In This Together, is available from Judson Press, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Bookshop, among others. If you've already purchased a copy and have enjoyed it or found it helpful in your life and ministry, please leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads. 
Thank you for being a part of this conversation today, which along with two previous installments will continue to be available on Facebook. It will also be available in podcast form as part of the Justice, Mercy, Faith podcast, which you can find at christiancitizen.us as well as on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Take good care, everyone. Look out for your neighbor. Let's continue on this path in this together. Thank you. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print-only publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform media brand. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guests, Margaret Markerson, Matthew Krebin, and Michael Wolf. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy-edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff-Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.